All right, is this microphone on, working okay? Good, good, good. It is good to be with you all tonight. I uh, appreciate so much your church. I had gotten to know Brother Dean through the years and built a friendship with him. Uh, and then I'm the one that recommended Tom Hughes to you and uh, had no idea when I recommended him to you that he would be with you almost three years. But, you know, the Lord knows these things, right? And Tom and I live probably about a mile and a quarter apart, so we are just barely over into Tennessee. Um, and I have a lot of fun with the state line. Um, I often say, you know, uh, I came over from the dark side because I lived in Christian County and then moved to Clarksville. I was pastor of First Baptist Church of Hopkinsville and then moved down to Clarksville and been there nine years. Both of my kids graduated from Hopkinsville High School. So um, we have a lot of roots and ties in this general area. And uh, was last in your building for the funeral for Jonelle Tribble. Um, she is a sister, or was a sister, to uh, a lady, and, and uh, she's married, uh, the Norfleets, who go back with our family since about 1990. Uh, we have connections with that family, uh, and so just uh, appreciated getting to be over here for that funeral as well. And then when Brother Greg came, uh, I got to meet him right away. Uh, Tom had kind of just given me a heads up of when he was coming and all that kind of thing. And uh, as uh, she mentioned earlier, my office is just up Trenton Road. If you follow Trenton Road past Northeast High School, uh, there's a church called Spring Creek, and my office is in the back of that, that property there. So I am not far away at all. Uh, but it is good to be over here with you. So uh, I want to share with you tonight a, a message. I'm not sure uh, what uh, you had, what you did this morning. So it's always a little bit of a, a wild card when you fill in. Uh, but we're going to be in John 14 tonight. John 14, uh, a message, a Bible study. I'm entitling "A Name to Know in Anxious Days." A name to know in anxious days. And so I want to read a passage tonight that um, is often used for a funeral, but I want to take it uh, a very different direction tonight as we talk about how it applies to 2021 and living in our culture, in our world. And so let's look at John chapter 14 and beginning with verse 1. We're just going to read the first seven verses there. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If not, I would have told you. I'm going away, away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. You know the way to the place, to, you, you know the way to where I am going. Lord, Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for the opportunity and privilege of being able to worship tonight. We do pray for Brother Greg as he's away, may you minister to he and his family. Uh, may this be a good time of making memories and being away together. I pray that you would just keep them safe in their travels. Father, I pray for this church family. Uh, 
Thank you for so many faithful people uh, who have carried the faith through the past, and thank you for the congregation that now makes its way here to Trenton Baptist Church. I pray that you would guide and direct in all that we do as we hear your word. Lord, I pray that you'd hide me behind the cross, and I pray that as you speak to us, you'd help us not simply to be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, although I have been at this position for nine years, I waited for a couple of years before I actually moved from Hopkinsville because my son was finishing high school. And so in 2013, uh, I was still living in Hopkinsville. And um, we, are, we had an event that took place in our lives that was pretty traumatic at the time and certainly one of those things that everyone in my family remembers. It was a Memorial Day weekend of 2013, and we were going to leave on a Sunday morning, headed out for vacation. On Saturday, uh, we were all working around the house, doing different things to get ready, packing and so on. And my son was mowing the front yard. And as he was mowing the front yard, he noticed something that caught his eye pretty quickly. We had a detached garage, 24 by 32 foot building, that was 12 feet off the corner of our house. And as my son was making a turn on the, uh, with the mower, he looked and saw flames coming out of the garage. And so immediately, of course, he got our attention, and we, uh, we were able to call the fire department. We lived in town in Hopkinsville. And uh, so he, uh, we were able to get our cars out of that garage, and uh, the firemen arrived almost immediately. Amazingly, they got there in three and a half minutes and we're putting water and foam on our garage. And I tell you that story because uh, it was pretty traumatic for all of us. Uh, my, my daughter was actually still asleep when we went running through the house and telling her, you know, fire, fire, get out, you know. And uh, so it's pretty, pretty traumatic. But what ended up happening was the garage was a total loss. But the firemen told us we were 30 to 45 seconds from losing our house. Now, I tell you that because that event for us was kind of a defining moment as a family. We talk about things before the fire and after the fire, you know. And not only that, but it was dramatic. I mean, when you're standing there before the firemen get there, that three and a half minutes seemed like a long time, right? And as we're watching those flames point towards our house, it was pretty traumatic. And it did destroy a lot of stuff. Uh, we had a pretty big insurance claim that came out of all that. And so as you and I think about that, I want you to think about where we are today in 2021. About the last 18 months or so, between COVID and political and ideological divides and uh, disruptions and civil unrest throughout our country, I want to suggest to you, in some ways, these are defining days as well. Even more so because between media and social media, they are uh, trumpeted all over our lives. And so as you think about that, I want to suggest to you that God has some words for us that are not only relevant, but they're powerful today. And so for that, I want you to think about this, this text 
because I believe it speaks to us personally, but I want to suggest it also speaks beyond us personally. It speaks to churches. In my role as the director of missions, we have about 46 congregations in our association, and so it keeps me rather busy. But one of the things I've noticed in the churches in our association, and it's pretty, di- pretty similar nationwide because I stay in touch with uh, a lot of the guys who do the exact same thing I do across the country. But what we're finding is some churches are now smaller than they were before COVID. We're finding that even as people are coming back and churches are sort of resuming regular activities, I see you're doing vacation Bible school and so glad you can get to do that. But it, as churches are coming back and doing regular activities, what we're finding is that many of them are struggling to find workers uh, because people who had done things for long periods of time maybe now are taking a break or sort of getting used to a break, you know? Uh, we're also finding, and I just tell you this because uh, I can. Uh, You need to pray for your pastor. Uh, One of the things that I hear from all the time is this is a time of real discouragement for pastors. And it doesn't take long for the enemy to try to plant seeds of discouragement in the heart of a pastor. And so in this season, this defining time, what is it that God has to say to us? Well, I want to suggest to you that the biggest idea I'm going to give you tonight out of this passage is simply this. The more we know of Jesus, the better we are to face the future. The more we know of Jesus, the better we are to face the future. And so that takes us to our text. And I want you to go back to chapter 14 and verse 1. And I want you to see the setting in the Gospel of John. If you look at chapter 12 and following uh, in the Gospel of John, what you find is it takes us from the, uh, the entry into Jerusalem to the cross itself. And this section of the Gospel of John is sort of a farewell tour, if you will, in which Jesus is doing some of his last teaching with his disciples, with his followers. He's preparing them for the fact that he's going to be physically absent from them once he goes to the cross and then ascends to heaven. And so as you and I think about that, there's a lot going on in this passage, but specifically right before chapter 14 and verse 1, you see two things in that chapter right before it. One is Judas and his betrayal are discussed, and then Peter's denial is predicted right before what we read. And so when you look at this passage, what you find is Jesus, no doubt, uh, is dealing with a lot of thoughts in his mind about what's going to happen with this band of disciples that's been following him once he goes to the cross. And so when you see those first words in verse 1, you get the sort of context of that. Look at those words in verse 1. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. He's giving us a word in which Jesus speaks to our insecurity. Jesus speaks to our insecurity. Let's be honest. I'm 56 years old. In my lifetime, I've never seen the level of disruption we saw with COVID. Some of you all agree with me on that? There are other things that have taken place in the last couple of years that I've never seen before in our country. 
And so when we look at those things, what we're reminded of is there are times when change can cause us to have a sense of insecurity. And in that insecurity, Jesus speaks to that. And when he says, don't let your heart be troubled, let me show you a couple things about that. One is simply this. The word for troubled there is a reminder that our Savior understands the things that we experience. Three times, uh, just before chapter 14, in 11, 12, and 13 of the Gospel of John, Jesus is described as having a troubled heart. One of those experiences is when he is at the tomb of Lazarus, and he's about to raise him from the dead. But he is described in chapter 11 as having a heart that is troubled. And then if you look in chapter 12, as he contemplates the cross and going to the cross, his heart is troubled. And then finally, in chapter 13, in the description of the Judas uh, story, you find that his heart is troubled. And when you look at that, the word for trouble literally means to be overcome with turmoil or intimidated by the situation. Now, the human part of Jesus is experiencing that troubled heart, right? And yet, he's the Son of God. And so, when you look at what he's doing, uh, I think John is trying to remind us he understands the anxiety that we may feel. And so, when you see what he's doing and how he responds, he's not just giving some words of instruction. He's saying, listen, I understand how you're going to be going through some times of trial and change. You're going to be troubled. And you need to know that I understand. Not only do I understand, but he knew that in times of anxiety for us, there are times when we're going to feel paralyzed. There are going to be times when we could really make poor decisions because we're full of anxiety. Anybody ever done something in your life out of fear that you later regretted? I mean, that happens sometimes to us. One other thing about anxiety is it has a way of making us feel like everything moving forward is somehow going to be worse. And so as Jesus speaks to his disciples, he's really investing in them. And look at what he says beyond that. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. Some of your translations there would say many mansions. If not, I would have told you, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. Jesus knew about anxiety. As a matter of fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6, he's very specific in helping us to be reminded not to worry because if God can take care of the flowers and, the, and he can take care of the birds of the air, he certainly can take care of us. But even though Jesus is aware of that sense of anxiety and his warning about worry, he understands that one of the greatest things that you and I need in times of anxiety and change are the promises of God. And look at what he does in this passage. One of the things he does is he says, don't worry, I'm coming again. I'm coming again. Can I just tell you, our culture needs to hear that message. Jesus is coming again. Increasingly, we look at statistics across America, 
And what we find is that our, our country is becoming more and more secular. And as it becomes more and more secular, things like the message that Jesus is going to return just seem to sort of go off into the ether, if you will. There's a sense in which it really is downplayed, and, and people begin to think, ah, I don't know about all that. That's not what Scripture says. Scripture says He is coming again. Another promise that He gives us is this. He's not going to leave us alone. As a matter of fact, He's going to prepare a place for us. And if you read a little further on in John chapter 14, He promises the Holy Spirit is going to be with us. And so we're not going to be alone. He is coming again. We're not going to be alone. And one more thing. When He leaves, He's going to do something. He's going to prepare a place for us. Now, when you look at that language and on how he describes that, he says in verse 3, if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again, take you, to be, uh, take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. And the reason I, I mention that again is because the part about the many mansions or many rooms, you know, there are a lot of gospel songs about a mansion in heaven and all that kind of stuff. Can I just tell you, though, as great as those songs are, we don't need to have our minds on a brick-and-mortar building. Heaven is so much bigger than that. It's so much grander than that. And literally, the word translated many rooms there uh, means something like the abiding place. The greatest thing he's telling us about heaven isn't about some kind of room or, or mansion. It's we're going to be in the abiding place with a risen Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us promises that we can hold on to. And so when we begin to look at that, we're reminded that those promises are so powerful. But let me tell you one more thing before I move off of that. As Jesus speaks to our insecurity, can I just tell you that the promises of God make a huge difference in a person's life when they come to faith in Jesus. One of the great heroes of the faith for me is my dad. I didn't come, I did not grow up until I was nine in a family that even went to church other than maybe Christmas and Easter. But due to some circumstances that are a long story of things that happened, my mom and dad both had the opportunity to hear the gospel clearly spoken to them through the ministry of a church in Arizona. We were living out there at the time, and when my dad heard that message, there's one thing that rang through his mind. Here's what it is. My dad lost his dad when my dad was seven years old. And so he grew up all the rest of the years of his upbringing without a dad. And in those years, from when he was seven to when he left home, and even beyond that, really, he talked about the fact that it deeply affected his identity, his self-esteem. Uh, everything about who he was was affected by the fact that he'd grown up without a dad. So fast forward, he's now in his early 30s. He hears the gospel. He was reading through some things that our church had given him about the gospel, and some of those were some scripture passages. And one of the things that clearly God used was God spoke to him about the gospel and said, you felt like you didn't have a father all your life. You have a heavenly father. You just didn't know it. 
And when my dad swallowed that truth, it changed not only his life, but it changed the insecurity of his life with a promise of God. And it changed everything about his future. And because of that, my family's future. Church, I want you to know something. The promises of God are still powerful. They still have a way of setting people free. They still have a way of making a difference in broken marriages and broken relationships and scars and wounds from the years that are past. God is powerful and his promises are still very real. The second thing I want you to see is found in verse 5. Look at this, look at this interchange between Thomas and Jesus. Lord, Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? I want you to know something. Assurance follows interaction. Assurance follows interaction. And here's what I'm talking about. Jesus has given this wonderful piece of teaching about where he's going and what's going to happen. <clears throat> and then Thomas speaks up and says, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't think I know the way you're talking about. I don't think I know those directions. Isn't that great? You know, sometimes people throw rocks at Thomas and call him Doubting Thomas and all that kind of thing. But you know what I think about Thomas? I think Thomas is a guy who just says what everybody else is thinking. They just don't voice it. And we know that. You know, the three particular encounters in the Gospel of John where Thomas is portrayed. One of them is when we're leading up to the time that Lazarus is going to be raised from the grave. And they're getting ready to go to Bethany. And before they go to Bethany for that wonderful miracle, uh, the disciples are talking. And they're talking about the fact that it's dangerous for Jesus to go back that close to Jerusalem. Bethany is just a stone's throw from Jerusalem. And so, as they're talking about it, finally Thomas speaks up and he says, well, let's all go with him. We might as well all die with him. What a great optimist, right? He says what all the other disciples are thinking, this is going to be a mess, but we're going to Bethany, okay? And, and, and then he, they go. The second encounter is the one that you and I see here, where he messes up this sort of wonderful poetic teaching, if you will, with just a... Don't think I know those directions. The third, of course, is the encounter where the risen Jesus has come back and he's appeared to the disciples. But Thomas is missing. And so, since Thomas is missing and he gets a, a report of what's happened, he gives a great statement just like a disciple. I'm not going to believe it. Not going to believe it unless I touch him, unless I see him. I have to see it. And, of course, the beautiful thing about the story is that Jesus does come back and reappears to them, and Thomas is present. And when he's present, Jesus offers for Thomas to check him out. Thomas doesn't have to check him out. He just looks at him and says, my Lord and my God. Now, I describe those encounters with Thomas because I want you to see something. Thomas does something that sometimes we are afraid to do. He speaks up with his doubts, with his fears, with his concerns. 
and he brings them where? To Jesus. Brings them right to the presence of Jesus. And as you and I look at what he's doing here, he's given us a model that ought to be part of discipleship. Because what happens is far too often we take our questions to the wrong places. We look to worldly sources for spiritual questions. We need to be coming back to the Word of God. The Word of God is still true, and Scripture itself reminds us that it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so when we look at what Thomas is doing, he's modeling for us something where he struggles with the cost, with the way, with the death of Jesus, and as he struggles with those things, He's showing us that 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 exploration is part of discipleship. Think about this. James says, if we need wisdom, we should ask for wisdom, and God will grant it. Jeremiah 33.3 says, ask of me, call on me, and I will show you great and mighty things that you didn't know. And so, when you look at what God wants to do, He wants to show us answers. He wants to help us process our doubts and our thoughts and our questions. And so, when we bring those things to Him, He can do amazing things. But there's one more piece of that I want you to see. Revelation comes when we seek Him. God reveals something of Himself to us. God is not trying to play hide-and-seek with us. He's trying to remind us that when we seek Him, He wants to show who He is to us. And friends, our identity ought to be wrapped up in what He shows us, not in what the world says. What happens with Thomas is pretty cool because what happens is it's not a matter of Thomas and the other disciples believing what Jesus says about the Father. It is that Jesus says, if you see me, you have seen the Father. That's a different thing. And so you look in verse 7, he articulates that very clearly. If you see me, you've seen the Father. And so you begin to see that there's this wonderful picture of how assurance follows interaction. I mention that because a lot of times in our lives, just personally, we can send a text message or an email. I don't know if you've ever done this, and you send a message. I'm not sure if that said what I intended to say here. It sort of sounds a little different. Or you get a message like that from somebody, email or text, and you think, I'm not sure if it says this or that. And you end up having to call them or have a face-to-face discussion with them to make sure you're communicating, right? Listen, what Thomas is showing us is when you and I interact with our Lord, He has a way of clearing things up like nothing we've ever seen. I love the stories of people like Rosario uh, Butterfield, who was uh, an atheist uh, professor of uh, taught English in uh, one of our more liberal universities here in the United States. And uh, as she taught that, One day she met a pastor and his wife, and she couldn't stand pastors. Matter of fact, she frequently made known uh, her atheist case, basically. But this pastor and wife 
invited Rosario to their home to have dinner, no strings attached. And then it happened again, and it happened again, and again. And over the course of time, she began to, wa- began to wonder, why in the world are they being so friendly to let me come? And she began to listen to the message. She's now a born-again believer. As a matter of fact, she's a, a pastor's wife in North Carolina. Wrote a book about her experiences. Actually, wrote two books about her experiences. It's a powerful picture of somebody where there was interaction that led to complete change in somebody's life. Let me share with you a third thing. Look, if you would, in verse 6. So often when we read this passage, we jump right to verse 6, and it is a beautiful verse of Scripture. Jesus told him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the answer to Thomas's question is, how do we get there? Not sure I understand that. Is simply this. Jesus gives him a portrait of himself. One of the organizing principles of the Gospel of John is there are seven I am sayings that are placed throughout the Gospel of John. One of them, for example, is I'm the bread of life. Another one of them is I'm the light of the world. Excuse me. And so when you look at that, this saying uh, in chapter 14, verse 6, is one of those seven I am sayings. And so it's a wonderful sort of continuity throughout the Gospel of John. But here's the other thing. Not only is it a beautiful sort of organizing picture for illustrating who Jesus is and, and, and sort of helping us get a greater picture of Him, but also it's a direct connection to Exodus 3.14 when Moses is in front of the burning bush and he's struggling with God speaking to him and, and beginning to think, how in the world am I going to get people to listen to me? And the Lord says to him, you tell them, I am sent you. And Jesus connects right up with that. It is now not just I am, but I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And so what you see is that in this last uh, portion of this, hope comes from His identity. Our hope comes from the identity of Jesus several years ago, my wife and I had just gotten married, and I was, this was 1987, I was finishing uh, my undergrad degree, and um, my wife was moving from Arizona to where I was in Mississippi, of all places. And uh, so, I was pastoring a church and going to college and doing all that kind of stuff, and we needed to move some money from the bank she had used in Arizona to the bank we were now using now that we're married in Mississippi. Well, we had a problem, and the problem was simply this, especially in 1987, bringing an out-of-state check for very much money to a bank was going to take about a year for it to clear. And so I went to my parents, who live in the same town where, where we lived, and I said, what are we going to do? I mean, you know, we, we need this to start doing some stuff and so on. And my dad said, ah, no problem. And he picks up the phone, and he calls a guy 
Ironically, his name was John Smith. Uh, pretty common name, right? Except that John Smith was vice president of the bank. And so uh, he, I, he said, now, when you get up to the counter, and as soon as the teller starts with that whole thing about you got to do all this stuff, just say, I was told to tell you to ask John Smith about this. And so sure enough, I went up to the window with that check, and the lady looked at the check, and she's like, mm, uh, hold on a second. And I said, I'm, I've been told to tell you to, to check with John Smith. So she picks up the phone, and she calls him. Well, he's just in a room back here, and you can see through the window, right? And I, I can look back, and I see him speak briefly. The next thing I know, Mr. Stevens, your check will be in your account later this afternoon. Was a huge benefit to know John Smith, wasn't it? Now, let me tell you something. Far too often in our lives as believers, we are trying to depend on the wrong things. The identity of Jesus is so powerful. Look at what he says. I am a way. I'm an optional way. I'm one of seven routes. No, I am the way. Not a popular concept in 2021. But here's the deal. If it didn't say the way, if it said an optional way, one of seven ways, the cross would be unnecessary. There's no reason for Jesus to go to the cross if you've got seven other ways you can go, right? But Jesus was headed to the cross. And he said, I am the way, the truth and the life. And in case there's any question, there's no other way to get through the Father. And so when you look at that, the first thing that you and I notice is that direct article there that helps us understand how important what he's saying is. And then look what he, what he says as he describes in those three terms. First of all, he says he's the way. Well, that's wonderful. In Acts, four times, the church is described as being the people of the way. It's a way of describing the early church. Not only that, but when you think about the way, it's a reminder that it's possible to not be on the way. It's possible to be on a detour somewhere, to be uh, off in the, uh, some kind of a detour, if you will. And, and I mention that because you and I live in a world that often depends on little boxes on our dashboard or our phones to get someplace that we need to go, right? <clears throat> and so that's fine, except that occasionally... Those little things are wrong. As a matter of fact, right now, where my mom and dad live down in Mississippi, if you go to their house the way that I drive there right now, I drive on a main thoroughfare that used to be a field. And so if I use my old GPS, it says turn around, recalculating, recalculating, recalculating. The little lady's mad in the dash, you know, uh, because it hasn't updated that this is now a through road. But beyond that, let me tell you something. Far too often our world says, just do what feels good. Just, just do whatever, you know, just follow your heart. But the Bible says there is a way that seems right unto a man. The end thereof is death. We don't need to just follow our wits. We need to follow the identity of Jesus. He directs us to where he has already been. That's the great thing about following the Lord. Whenever we are following him, he's taking us somewhere. He's already been there before us. What a great picture. You know what's so neat about that is the image of the way here 
is he's not just giving us directions. You've had this experience before where you're trying to go somewhere, maybe somewhere here in Todd County. Somebody says, oh yeah, you just go right up here and turn left at the old tree, turn right where the old Smith place was. It's torn down now, but where the old Smith place was, turn there and, you know, and pretty soon you're lost, right? The concept of the way is Jesus doesn't just give us some directions. He's going with us to make sure we get where we need to go. What a great picture. Jesus says, I am the way. What was his way? Sacrifice and surrender. He was willing to do that. And when he's Lord of our lives, that's his way. He says he's the way. He also says he's the truth. His word gives clear boundaries. You and I can trust his word, despite the fact that our culture often looks at it and says, ah, dusty old book, it doesn't have anything to say today. Things have changed, times have changed. Yeah, but God's word hasn't changed. It's still living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Not only is he the truth, but when you think about him being the truth, one of the great things about it is he's filled with practical honesty. I mean, for example, in this situation alone, he is being honest with his disciples. I am physically not going to be here soon, but let me show you how I have prepared you for this moment. What a great sense of practical honesty. He doesn't uh, hold back and pretend as though everything is going to be roses and, and easy for them. Would you also notice something else? Would you notice the way that Jesus presents the truth? He comes up to somebody like the woman at the well or the woman caught in adultery or, or even his disciples sometimes, and he speaks the truth in love. But when he comes up to some, for example, religious leader who's filled with pride and filled with themselves, he's pretty confrontational. And so when you think about the way he presents the truth, he does it in the, the most effective way. Because he gives grace to the humble. But he is pretty strong with the truth with those that are filled with pride. And so when you begin to look at that picture of the truth, it's a wonderful sense that he's not only the way, but he is the truth we can trust. And then he speaks about the life. John 10.10, we're reminded, Jesus said that he came to give us life, but not just life, life more abundantly. He's come to give us a purpose and a meaning to our lives so we are on a mission with Him that is filled with purpose. But there's something else that we don't need to blow past here. When He speaks about life, of course He's talking about the fact that when we've been born again, we have eternal life. Even sometimes in churches, I sort of get the sense that people sort of downplay the fact, well, I was saved when I was 10. It was no big deal. Church, let me tell you something. If you're in this place tonight and you're born again, that is a miracle that can be attributed to a supernatural God. Our God is a supernatural God. He's not some sort of wimpy thing who just doesn't know how to handle some stuff. Our God is the God of the universe. And so when he speaks of the fact that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and he speaks of life here, he's helping us to understand you and I, in him, have something so much better than anything the world could ever give us. Why? 
in part because he defeated death itself. There is hope in him. So I want you to think about this passage for just a moment. Jesus is about to disappear from them physically as he goes to the cross and then ascends to heaven. But he spends some time talking with his followers. And one of the greatest things he says to them is, don't worry, you're not going to be left alone. I've already gone before where you're going. I don't know if you've seen this little story, but it's a great one. You can Google it later on. There's a guy named David Brown, and there's a guy named Jerome Avery. Jerome Avery is a world-class sprinter, and he's going to be competing this year in the Paralympics. Why? Because Jerome is blind, but he's a world-class sprinter. How do you do that? How do you run on a track when you're blind, right? That's where David Brown comes in. David Brown is older than Jerome. He was in the, quote, regular Olympics as a sprinter in past years. And what he's done is he has devoted his training to helping sprinters like Jerome Avery in the Paralympics. And so what happens is as they're running down the track, Jerome and David are connected by a, a string that's about six inches long that connects their hands. And that way, Jerome won't get off the track, right? But there's something else you need to know because they have practiced a lot together. He is able to keep up with Jerome at the pace that he's running at, and he speaks to him. They have voice signals that help him to make sure that he's doing everything that he needs to do because in an Olympic competition, you know, a tenth of a second is a big deal. And so as they're going down the track, they are connected by that thread and he's giving him instruction. And then here's the most awesome thing. When they get to the finish line, David hesitates just a smidge so that Jerome crosses that line first. What a great picture of Olympic teammates, right? But can I just tell you, that's exactly what God wants to do with us. He wants to walk with us every day of our lives. Until one day, we get to go home. Wherever you are today, maybe you've never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, and you could do that today. It's as simple as asking forgiveness for your sin, turning from that sin, and putting your trust in Jesus. But secondly, many of you here are very likely already believers. But let's be honest. These have been challenging days. Is it possible that anxiety, worry, has sort of stolen some of the joy and peace that's been part of your life? i got to tell you something. He's right there. Maybe you need to lay some things at the foot of the cross. Maybe you need to speak to Him. Get that relationship right where you're putting your trust not in anything from our world, but in Him. And folks, when we do that, God can do amazing things. Our hope is in a risen Lord Jesus who took time to speak honestly and truthfully with his followers. Even a pesky guy like Thomas who interrupted and said, not sure I understand all that. 
Praise the Lord. Because we're probably all a little bit like Thomas along the way. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity and privilege of opening your word tonight. Thank you so much for the way that your word speaks to us. And I pray that even in these moments that you would just guide and direct everything that we do. Lord, I pray that when we leave this place, we'd know that we've taken care of any business with you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may stand. I'm going to be right here on the front pew, and if anybody would like to pray about something, I'm right there. If not, let's sing.